Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, the Head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at Antidote Festival in 2019. Since the beginning of time, societies have had to develop ways to resolve disputes amongst their citizens. Courts, tribunals and mediations exist in various forms across cultures, each with their own distinct flavour. But what happens when concepts of justice just don't align? How can our laws reflect multiple cultures in a way that respects traditions and upholds basic human rights? In this thought-provoking panel, Kimberly Motley, an American lawyer working in Afghanistan, the Indigenous writer Melissa Lukashenko, and Peter Blood, a restorative justice practitioner, come together to interrogate the very concept of justice and how we can make it work for everyone. This session is hosted by lawyer and broadcaster Larissa Berendt. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this panel on Unlocking Justice. I'm Larissa Berendt. I'm a professor at the University of Technology, Sydney, and the host of Speaking Out on ABC Radio. I'd also like to join in the acknowledgement of country and pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Well, this afternoon we've got a very special conversation. We're looking at concepts of justice, and it means very different things to different people, often based on our own experiences within society and its institutions. So we're going to unpack and deconstruct and reframe what justice might mean with a panel of three exceptional women who I'll introduce to you now. Um, my furthest, furthest, on my furthest left is uh, Kimberly Motley. She's a lawyer, an author, and a human rights uh, activist, advocate. She became the first foreign lawyer to practice in the courts of Afghanistan. She's also the author of Lawless, a lawyer's unrelenting fight for justice in one of the world's most dangerous places. Next to her, Melissa Lukashenko is one of Australia's most powerful authors, an Indigenous woman. She is a writer of fiction and non-fiction. She is also one of the founding members of Sisters Inside. Her novel, Too Much Lip, was recently awarded the Miles Franklin Award. Peter Blood is the Chair of Restorative Practices International, a not-for-profit independent association that supports the development of restorative justice in schools, prisons, workplaces, organisations, families and communities. So three very different and important and powerful perspectives to shed some light on this topic of justice. And I'm going to start with a general question, maybe just to sort of position us in each of your worlds. And maybe starting with you, Kimberly, I wonder if you could talk to us about what your idea of justice is, particularly based on your personal experiences and how that's shaped the way you see the world. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you all for coming and thank you for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be here today. Um, I would say it's sort of my general concept of justice uh, that I see sort of my clients striving for is a way for them to be made whole after they have been affected usually by some type of criminal act or even sort of some type of commercial issue that happens with them. Um, It's, you know, I I don't really, to be honest, subscribe to justice um, in terms of my striving for that for my clients because I feel like it's a very abstract 
unattainable, unrealistic goal for a lot of my clients to reach for. And so what I, how I choose to work and how I choose to educate my clients is it's my job as their attorney to strive for uh, what is available to them within the confines of the law. So I call that justness, as that I'm fighting for justness on behalf of my clients, which is more about uh, the legal realities that they that are available to them. Mm -hmm. I just move to you, Melissa. The concept of justice within the Australian legal system is very narrow and applies to a very small number of people in terms of the fact that many Aboriginal people feel that they can't get justice within that system. Mm -hmm. You speak very broadly in terms of um, power dynamics within um, the Australian state you think very deeply about class differences. From your perspective, what, does what do concepts of justice look like to you? Well, I think true justice would have um, several key components. It would have economic justice, for one thing. You can't have a, a country where people are sleeping on the street and where children are going hungry and say that you live in a just society. Um, you know, I'm here with the festival, so I'm staying at a five-star hotel. and. Uh, I was at breakfast this morning, and I'm not paying for it, but breakfast is $42 at this hotel. And there's a family there, a white family with their children, and their children are having this, you know, hideously expensive breakfast. And I know that there's Aboriginal kids in Ocean Shores whose mothers are saying to them, no, you can't have that packet of chips um, for dinner tonight because you need that for school tomorrow, otherwise it'll be another full school day without anything to eat. And, uh, you know, a society where those sort of choices are having to be made again and again and again, particularly by Aboriginal people, but also by poor white people and others, um, doesn't reflect any kind of economic justice. Um, that's my off-the-cuff answer. But what you're saying about the, the limitations of what you can aspire to for your clients, Kimberly, it just reminded me of a, a woman I was working with, an Aboriginal woman who'd not long come out of prison about 12 months ago. And I managed to get her to see a counsellor, which she wasn't particularly interested in, and quite rightly so, as it turned out. And she said, I hate it when they ask that question, what are you going to be, how, where do you see yourself in five years' time? Mm. She said, I don't know what I'm going to be doing in five days' time. And, you know, her housing was precarious. Her entire life was precarious, so this ridiculous question of how she saw herself in five years' time just highlights to me that... Um, what looks like justice from the grassroots doesn't look anything like it might appear from those standing outside. Peter, your work is around restorative justice. So obviously this is um, a, a terrain that you've thought about very deeply. From your work and your experiences, how have you come to think about justice as a concept? I think for, for me, um, justice is a concept uh, like Kimberly, like you were saying, um, making whole or in some way making right again that uh, looks at multiple, providing multiple entry points for people to seek justice and not believing that there's only one way. And I don't ever believe that we can have a system that's set up the state will find that right way for people. Uh, we're asking too much of it. And so for me, it's about um, unless we're looking at how we repair harm and give people an opportunity to have a voice and a say in the matter, mm. that's not justice. 
so how do we create that at the right part time when people are ready, if they are ever ready for that dialogue? That, that's probably what justice means to me. It reminds me of a famous quote, I think, was it Stana Larissa, who said that the purpose of Aboriginal ceremony, which in this context is a, a form of legal um, redress, is to unite hearts and restore order. I think that's just a beautiful phrase, to unite hearts and restore order. Yeah. And one that wouldn't hurt our justice system to adopt, but it would seem quite a foreign concept. Mm. Kimberly, you write about your journey in your book, Lawless, A Lawyer's Unrelenting Fight for Justice in a War Zone. But can you share, us, share with us how you came to find yourself in Afghanistan and what were some of the key lessons you've, you've learnt there? Well, I went to Afghanistan in 2008, and I went there as part of a justice-funded program to train and mentor Afghan defense attorneys. Um, when I went there, I had been a practicing attorney for five years as a public defender, and so I was a criminal defense attorney, you know, represented um, hundreds and hundreds of people, which I was very proud of. I was a trial attorney, and I was sort of given this opportunity to go there and be this legal expert to train Afghan lawyers on the legal system that they were ostensibly building for themselves. And it was completely ridiculous that I was hired for the job. I, it was my first time leaving the country. I had to get a passport. I knew nothing about Afghanistan except what I had seen on the news, but yet I was sent there to be this expert. And so um, it really was, to Isn't be that a familiar story? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, the American way. And, um, <laughs> and so, um, you know, that's why I was, I was sent there, to, to train lawyers and also to help build their legal aid system. And it, for me, it was mostly a financial opportunity, to be honest. Um, it was an opportunity to go there for a year, make more than triple my salary, and then I figured I'd come back to the U.S. and go back to being a defense attorney. But within that year of my being in the system there, I uh, didn't really know anything, so I thought the best way to educate myself on the legal system there would be for me to go to trials there, for me to go to the prisons and listen to people, for me to look at court files. And sort of what I was hearing from different defendants and different victims in the system is how people were being completely railroaded. You know, people getting tortured for confessions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, women often going to prisons for being rape victims. Mm -hmm. um, people not even having attorneys to represent them. And so based on these experiences and based on talking to different people, um, particularly when I went to a prison, I went to this prison just for a basic prison tour, again, to talk to people. And while I was in this tour, I met several foreigners that were locked up, foreigners from Australia, from the UK, and South Africa that were locked up for various offenses. And up until that point, it never even dawned on me that there were foreigners locked up in Afghanistan. And so in talking to all of these ex-military men, they also told me about how they were tortured, about how they were, uh, didn't have an attorney. They were there for years and they didn't even know what their sentences were because everything was in a different language. Mm -hmm. And so based on these, these experiences, I decided to quit the job that I was working and then I just started taking cases in Afghanistan. Melissa, I mentioned you were a founding member of Sisters Inside. Aboriginal women are a vulnerable group within the legal system, both as offenders and as victims of crime. Mm. And I think probably most 
Australians don't realise just how vulnerable the female prison population is mm -hmm. and how little support there is when women are transiting out of prison and the issues they face. So I was wondering if you could share from your experiences, your reflections on, on that and what you think uh, would be a different approach to supporting women in that context. Yeah, um, well, ab women as a percentage of the prison population, um, are, uh, the numbers are increasing Australia-wide as neoliberalism does its dirty work and strips assets out of housing and social supports. And one of the results of that is that um, people fall through the cracks of the system and end up falling straight into the very profitable prison industry. Uh, as uh, you know, fodder and an economic asset to the private companies that profit from human misery. And a lot of those women are Aboriginal women. Uh, oftentimes, uh, women who don't speak English well at all, who might have English as a third or fourth or fifth language, if we're talking about uh, Northern Australia. And uh, even if they do speak English and, say, are in South East Queensland, where I'm from, Women uh, are leaving, usually, environments of poverty, going into prison and returning to environments of great poverty and uh, sometimes of great violence as well. So they're caught in a, a revolving wheel. But what can be done uh, is that resources, instead of being given to huge NGOs that have no idea how to work with Aboriginal people and wouldn't know a blackfellow if they fell over one on a moonless night, <laughs> is you can fund community grassroots organisations that actually know the culture that people are coming out of and understand the language that people speak. And so what we have in Brisbane is the Yanga program. Yanga is a Yugambeh word, it means get up. And uh, Nettery Mabo, uh, granddaughter of the famous Eddie Mabo, uh, along with a couple of other staff, runs a simple program where at-risk Aboriginal girls and young women get together once or twice a week and do art. Right. A lot of the girls are interested in painting uh, and what the girls have done in this program that's been running for about three years now, they have a safe place to go to a couple of times a week, they build positive peer relationships, they get mentored by Netta and some of the other staff and the artwork gets sold at an annual auction and the girls use that to go away somewhere. Mm -hmm. right. And they've gone to uh, the Northern Territory They've gone on a trip to the Barrier Reef. You know, these are girls from the most desperately poor families who would never, ever, ever have a chance to go outside the state or to take long trips like that. And they have got all these benefits from a simple program that would cost maybe at most $100,000 a year to run. And the number of prison years saved and lives saved is astronomical. So that's what can be done in the short term. Peter... What fundamental rethinking can restorative justice processes offer our legal system? And in sort of thinking about your work in that justice space, I wonder if you can also talk about what benefits it can have for victims of crime. Yeah, I think um, firstly is that we've got to think more broadly than the, the justice system to, to actually resolve um, our issues and get back to, because I'm a firm believer that our communities, when they're supported and empowered, they actually do have answers and they have solutions if we can work with that. And 
And uh, Melissa, I've experienced the same thing of going into uh, APY lands, being sent in there to offer a facilitated process for... Desert community in Central Australia. Yeah, oh, okay. for Aboriginal women and taking the time to meet with women and have coffee with them and saying, you know what, um, your mob might think we want um, black facilitators, but we actually want white facilitators because then we can actually trust the neutrality of a process and we're not being asked mm. to facilitate our own issues because it's too complex for us. Mm -hmm. But that was that group of women. Um, and I think, so if we look at what restorative justice can do, it's, it's about going to our communities, it's about finding out what they need and that we find a process that works for them mm -hmm. and we wrap around the supports that go with that because restorative justice on, it, on its own is a circuit breaker. Uh, it can start the healing process, but there has to be a whole lot of work that goes from there. And we also have to start to think about how we start to apply this work. So I'm a firm believer in breaking that uh, school to prison pipeline mm -hmm. that we see poverty to prison pipeline that we see and actually starting to go back and empowering our students, our educators in what can we do when there's conflict and harm happening. Can, can I just add to that real quick? I think restorative justice is so important because what a lot of people don't realize is the vast majority of people that go into prison are going to come out of prison, yeah. over 90%. Yeah. So you have to think about what type of person do you want to come back into society? Yes. Do you want someone that's just been locked away and forgotten and punished? Or do you want someone that has sort of been through some type of rehabilitation, um, perhaps gone through restorative justice with, with the victims? And I think that's so important, not just for the perpetrator or the victim, but for the community at large. Yeah, and, and healing, because we know in our prison system we have so many victims of crime mm -hmm. there, or the women who are in domestic violence situations, who that is respite for them an opportunity to be safe, have a bed, um, get clean. Uh, we've, there's so much more we have to do, so much more. Yeah. Kimberly, uh, um, I'm really interested in your approach to law as an advocate. I'm a lawyer myself, so perhaps this is of particular interest to me, but I think it's really interesting that in some contexts you use perhaps fairly unconventional solutions to a problem because the law's not quite fit, fitting into the situation. In other circumstances, you've sought to reform the law. And in other circumstances, you actually dig deep into the black letter of the law and find those laws that are underutilised. So there's a whole range of ways, in, different ways, in which you seek to use the law as an advocate. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see that um, that role as an advocate and whether the, the law is a, a sword or a shield, um, when do you break the laws and when do you stick to them? Okay. Well, I mean, I think that's a really good question. And what I've learned is how flexible and creative my practice has become. For instance, uh, in Afghanistan, it is the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. So Islamic law is law. So it's important for me as a lawyer to understand Islamic law and to be able to use that. And for instance, if I'm representing a woman who is charged, who is raped and is charged with adultery, 
which that happens quite often in Afghanistan. Well, according to the Holy Quran, I was able to find a chapter and verse, which isn't a secret, that says that you need four eyewitnesses to come to court. There's never four <laughs> eyewitnesses to come to court. And so, but I'll bring that up um, as a means to argue on behalf of my client to say that if there aren't four eyewitnesses, therefore you cannot find them guilty, and that has worked. Mm -hmm. Now, when I go to Cuba, and according to the law, it says that a defense attorney can never have as their defense something um, that basically says that um, the government did something wrong, because essentially you're committing sedition as an attorney. So you have to, so then I may argue that this particular police officer specifically did something specifically wrong, as opposed to attacking the institution. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I find um, in Afghanistan and wherever I'm at, because I practice now, thankfully, all over the world, is that law to me and sort of my cases are very musical in a lot of way. And I always talk about, like, I sort of DJ a little bit on the side. And so... Um, <laughs> For me, it's all about building playlists oh, for different cases. I don't be bots. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm I wish. <laughs> I probably horrify my kids if I beatbox. But, um, but for me, you know, legal practice is very musical, and it's about building different playlists for different cases. And so, you have my job as a lawyer is to. Un it's not about me. It's about my clients and what's the best for them. And I have to understand what the beat of the court is. What is the court dancing to today? Mm. You know, some courts say like hip hop, some courts say like rap, some courts say like rock. You have to create these playlists so that when you're giving and sort of spitting out your beatboxing beats mm. to the judges and give them something to dance to. And so basically give them something that makes sense to them within the club that they are in because different courts have different genres. Mm. And I have learned that by practicing law in different countries that, you know, you have to be flexible, you have to be creative, and you have sometimes you have to, you know, change up your playlist and that's okay. So justice may be about finding the perfect playlist. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's all about I didn't music. think that's where we were. You <laughs> never know where it's going to take you. Um, Melissa, um, I've read something that you said that's really stayed with me. It said, you said, I'm quoting you, it fills you with rage to be poor in a rich country, and I think that's perfectly legitimate. We need a revolution. Now, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit to us about that and uh, that idea. Do you change the colonial system or do you rise up against it? And what do you see the role of your storytelling in that? Well, as Frederick Douglass famously said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. So in order to change the system, we will have to rise up against it in small ways and in big ways. Uh, I think what I try and do in my fiction is, is give... Um, give dignity to people that often lack dignity in this society and to say, um, you know, these are human beings with all of the intrinsic rights and flaws and failings and strengths and um, beauty of any human being. Mm. And, uh, you know, storytelling, maybe justice is nothing more than a story, but it's a story that can include or it can exclude. You know, um, the story of Ms. Dew in Western Australia, you know, beaten by her boyfriend and with a, uh, several broken or fractured ribs and then incarcerated um, unjustly when she went to the police for help, I think the story was. 
But in any case, incarcerated when she shouldn't have been. That's right, unpaid fines, picked up for unpaid fines. And uh, who died in custody as a result of those two things, gender-based violence against her and uh, systematic racism against her as an Aboriginal person living in poverty. What happened that could have been the end of the story, and for her it was, and her family, you know, has to live with that tragedy. But Debbie Kilroy heard that not long after her death, another Aboriginal person had gone to prison for unpaid fines, a man who had never been in any sort of trouble with the law, chucked in jail because of unpaid fines, and she was incensed, and she started the Free the People campaign and thought, well, maybe we can raise... $50,000 to start doing something and getting people out of prison. You know, the simple thing, the not the big picture stuff that also has to happen, but the simple grassroots, pay the fine, get the woman out of jail. And that campaign has raised, I think, now close to half a million dollars. And there's something like 70 or 80 Aboriginal women who are out free in Western Australia who would otherwise be in prison while their children go into foster care and their families continue to crumble, you know. Lots and lots of women who are free because of one woman's act. We can all do something. Mm -hmm. I'm going to come back to you on that point about us all doing something. Yep. Um, Peter, I asked you earlier about restorative justice in, in relation to, I guess, the criminal justice legal system. But your work looks at that concept much more broadly, um, particularly in how it those approaches can much more broadly transform the community. And I'm thinking particularly of the way in which you've worked in the education space. So I was wondering if you can share your experiences and insights in relation to that work. Yeah, sure. I, I started my working life as a um, sworn police officer. And, um, you know, for part of that, I was a forensic officer and I was on this constant search for what was the truth in terms of what did the evidence tell us about that scene. And as I did that, I came into contact with family members of, of the victims of those crimes and the victims themselves. And then at some stage, uh, I moved on from that. I think that's a, a limited lifetime to, uh, time to spend in that profession. And I started to look at probably the futility of our system and, and watching not only victims of crime, but, but those that have done the wrongdoing, the offenders just churn through this system. And, and, and police are angry with the courts for not bringing about justice or longer sentences. They're back out on the street. People are being hurt again. Um, meanwhile, nothing much is changing. So... We started to look at uh, what is the journey to offending and what we, um, which is there's no secrets in terms of when a young person or a teenager is uh, absent from their school um, through suspension, exclusion or because they're not, not coping, they're, they're not attending, there's a high likelihood of them coming into contact with the criminal justice system. Uh, as a, uh, with the police, um, leading to ending up in the juvenile justice system and unfortunately really high reoffending rates still today uh, through that system and then end up in the adult system. So for a group of us who were probably working internally fighting against the system, which is probably not the best way to go, I have to say looking back, 
but uh, we started to look at, well, can we get into schools and support educators who are working incredibly hard trying to find answers to this and give them the tools to start to deal with uh, wrongdoing in schools and when people are harmed. So we started to uh, work with some uh, schools here in Queensland, it was also happening, where we started to bring uh, the kids that had caused harm, together with the kids that had been harmed, their family members, the teachers who were part of that, to look at what could we do to resolve, to, to take responsibility for the wrongdoing, to acknowledge the harm that had been done, to hear what that harm was and the impact was, but then as a collective group, look at what needed to happen to repair harm. So it was a, a learning opportunity for those going through this and it was a shift away from punitive responses that typically went to that next step of suspending a child. Um, so we were then able to work with those schools that suspension was the last option and certainly suspension out of school being the last option, but putting support in place. Uh, you know, so my, my view is that if we can start to educate our future generations coming through, heal those harms, not repeat patterns, they go in to be, uh, they're going to be parents. They're going to be in workplaces. Uh, we don't want this being replicated that someone is a victim uh, or is an aggressor, uh, no matter where the setting is. So that's where I believe we need to start and keep working. But really the application could be anywhere. I'm going to address my next question to each of you and maybe I'll start with you, Melissa, because you sort of alluded to it before and it's about the things that individuals can do. We live in an age where people feel overwhelmed by uh, the politics around Trump, the politics around Brexit, the fires in the Amazon, the melting of the ice and there is a sense a lot of people have of feeling disempowered and disengaged but I think one of the things that struck me when I was preparing for the panel today was that each of you in your own ways have been quite effective agents of change. So I was wondering if you could share with us um, your reflections on what sort of difference an individual can make and perhaps not just from your own experience but perhaps from some of the change makers who have influenced you uh yeah well you know the biggest trick that uh, people in power have ever pulled over the eyes of ordinary people is to convince us that we don't have power when we actually do you've only got to look at hong kong at the moment you know marches of two million people two million people in the streets all it takes is for us to get up on our feet and say, I won't accept this, you know, this is unacceptable. And it's only the fact that we don't do that that creates any powerlessness in us. So I think um, we have masses of power at our disposal if we refuse to buy into the lies. And part of refusing to buy into the lies is using simple language and say, it's wrong to take a Sri Lankan family and put them on Christmas Island when there's a community in Biloela that are crying for those people to come back and be Australian citizens and, you know, the two girls already are Australian citizens and make a good and profitable, uh, for everyone, life in Australia. You know, it's wrong that large international companies pay no tax while people on the dole 
are struggling to find a can of baked beans to eat. You know, it is wrong to steal a continent off its indigenous people. The simplicity of language is something that we can all look for and, and use, you know, instead of accepting jargonistic bullshit as the response from politicians every day. I think, um, you know, st to step outside our comfort zones and be a little bit braver to tell the truth, I think that's a good start, yeah. And, uh, you know, what you were talking about in restorative justice, this idea that um, we don't just chuck people away when they become enraged by their circumstances. You know, if I was a young black fella or a young Muslim or a young poor white kid or an old white pensioner or someone else who the system is really doing incredible violence to every day, I'd be angry. I'd be doing the kind of things that got me kicked out of school. I'd be doing the kind of things that got me locked up, most likely. And it's not my fault. It's the fault of a system that says some people matter and some people don't. That's a system that came from England and that system is wrong. So I say that and that's my contribution. Kimberly, from your experience, what is the ability for individuals to make change? And if that's also something you can share with us, the change makers who've influenced you. Okay. Well, I agree with 100% with what um, Melissa said. And I think um, to start off of what you said, uh, the beginning what you said, which is to recognize the power that we all have as individuals and accept the power that we have. Mm -hmm. The fact that we're all sitting in this beautiful theater you know, being able to leisurely talk freely, listen freely without being attacked by our governments. We all hold in this room a certain amount of privilege. And people died for that right. People shed blood so that we could do that. Exactly. And let's not forget it or take it lightly. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. and, and so because people have died and because people have sacrificed, we all have a responsibility as privileged individuals to do something about it. It's nothing to be ashamed of to be privileged, but you should be ashamed if you're not doing anything, mm -hmm. frankly. And so what I always tell people when they say, well, what can I do? I think it's important for everyone has sort of their different skill sets. Like my skill set is fighting the law. My skill set is being able to talk about the law to people in a language that they understand and to take cases to court. I'm not a person that's gonna go march. I'm, that's just not who I am but maybe that's something somebody else can do. You know, if you're a person who, uh, you're a consumer, you have the right to, like you said, to not be a consumer for, com for companies that are being um, horrible to the environment or horrible to the larger community. You can do that, you can make those choices. Every day we make choices of how we choose to protest or how we choose to, what I call, be a global investor in human rights. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, and putting things on Facebook and Twitter, that's just not good enough, okay? Unless you're a child, okay? And you can't, you need someone else's permission to leave the house, then yes, that's good enough. But I always tell this story. Um, I would often go to the prisons in Afghanistan. And like I said, I always tell people that I'm a global investor in human rights. And I would go to the juvenile prisons. 
And I remember coming home one day and talking to my kids, and two of my kids are here with me in um, Sydney. And I was telling my young daughter about how, you know, the girls in prison, you know, she was asking about the little girls, like, what do they do all day? And I said, well, they just talk, and they don't really have any toys or any dolls or any jump ropes. And so a couple weeks later, when I was about to go to Afghanistan, my daughter, Chera, she gave me a bunch of her toys and asked me to take them with me to Afghanistan to give some of the girls in prison so that they could play with the toys. And that's how she chose to be a global investor in human rights. That's how she chose to give back to the community in a way that was within her power. And I think that's important for us as a large community to figure out what can we do, whether it's educating somebody, whether it's money do donations, you know, whether it's, like I said, being good consumers. But there's a wide variety of things that we all can do on a daily basis mm -hmm. to show that we have the power to change things. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I think we're definitely seeing that in Hong Kong mm -hmm. um, with, you know, what's happening there. And we have a responsibility to, to fight. One of the Aboriginal um, Bundjalung elders once said to me that it's actually not all that hard. What we need to do is everyone needs to look after their own family and do a little bit more. If everyone did that, we would be right. If everyone looked after their own family and just did a little bit more. And of course, if the government started making sensible policies around housing instead of treating housing as a kind of cash cow for the investor class. Peter, your thoughts on what individuals can do as agents of change? Um, I've, I've just got to echo Kimberly and, and Melissa, and it's it's not you know not thinking we can't make a difference. We can. Uh, sometimes we don't know our own power and the difference we make to another individual's lives. And and you know I I, I look at schools and say you you look at kids who. Um, continue through and they often look at one adult mm, yep. that was the safe constant there mm. that kept them going yep. one person can make an in a difference to one person mm. um, but I also look at you know I walked away from policing pretty disheartened that uh, we had a restorative justice unit and clearly we weren't the right fit for our organization at that time and with that, I looked at, well, what am I going to do? I, I've no longer got a platform to, to make change. So I connected with one person that wanted to have a conversation, mm. and that ended up in one school, and that ended up in an entire co country of schools and international from one conversation and going, I'm up for this and I'm open to this. Mm. And we're all, we're all up for this. Yeah. We really are. Yeah, it makes me think of my friend Kate Grenville, um, who wrote The Secret River, and in her memoir, um, Kate talks about having a, a troubled childhood, including a father who tried to strangle her, she thinks. She's not quite sure, but she has a memory that her father tried to strangle her or drown her in the bath, I forget. But she had an aunt, and she lived with that aunt, I think it was for a period of a year or two years. And because that aunt loved her and showed her what love was like, Kate went away with the knowledge that she was lovable. So it doesn't even have to be no. someone constant throughout a child's childhood. And you never actually know how much you touch someone. Exactly. Um, right. You know, you, you don't know the positive impact that you can have. 
so sometimes the the small things can be more meaningful than mm-hmm. we think. And you know, no Absolutely. one makes a list of all the the positive things. No one makes a a newspaper saying, "Oh, we stopped this happening," or "This didn't happen today." You know, of course, we always see the negative because that's what news is. But uh, if you look at the rights that have been won in the last um, couple of hundred years worldwide, and particularly in the last couple of decades, you know, the the rights around unions, the rights of women to work and to participate in different ways, the rights of disabled people to be recognised as people, you know, to who can engage in society in different ways. All these rights have been fought for and won because power concedes nothing without a demand. And we've demanded and we have won all these things. It's important to remember that. Mm-hmm. I'm just about to ask my last question to the panel and I'm flagging that because there are microphones downstairs and upstairs. So if you have got a question to ask, you can maybe start making your way over there now. Um, my final question to you is, um, I, I did a in conversation with Tony Birch recently and one of the things he observed was that in the Aboriginal community where there is so much need and um, lack of opportunity and and hard issues, it often falls to the women to pick that up, that mm-hmm. Aboriginal women, although they're the, um, the, the most oppressed within the society, carry the heaviest load. And it struck me that this was a panel with all women, including an Aboriginal woman. Um, and I thought my final question to, to you would be, it's not actually not easy for anyone to stand up and advocate for the rights of others or to advocate for change. And it's particularly not easy for women, whatever their background, to do that. And I just was wondering if you could share with us, I'm very interested in this idea of the resilience of the people who fight the fights Mm. and sort of acknowledging that personal wellbeing and and respecting that and nurturing that in our leaders, particularly our women, is really important. Mm. So I thought you might each give us a little bit of an insight into how you look after your well-being and your resilience so that you can keep fighting. And I'll start with you, Peter. I've got to be honest because my partner's <laughs> eyeballing me right at this moment. Um, I haven't done a very good job at looking after myself. I've, I've burnt myself out a couple of times in this this fight um, to bring about change. And, and uh, now in my fifth decade, I've really had to learn that until I look after me and my well-being, then I can't possibly uh, continue to work with others. So I've really been a slow learner in learning that. Um, But I'm resilient because I keep getting back up. But, uh, yeah. Kimberly? Well, I'm going to sort of echo what Peter said. I don't think I do a great job either. Um, I was actually talking dinner last night with Denise Ho, and she's sort of, I recommend going to see her talk as well. Um, she's one of the main people on the forefront for the fight that's happening in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And we were talking exactly about this. And, you know, I, I just download a lot of music. I have a lot of playlists. You know, I, I don't know. Um, it, it can be tiring, you know, because there's so many issues that are happening in so many parts of the world. And for, for me, I really take it personal. Like when I take a case, I really sort of dive into it. Um, But I guess one thing that I do do is I try to make sure I value my sleep. And I know that sounds simple, but I just make sure as much as I can that when I, that I have the most comfortable sleep that I possibly can, because that's sort of 
my time, my meditation time. And so that helps a little bit, I've found. I know that's boring. Sorry. Value <laughs> <laughs> right my sleep. It's the boring <laughs> things that actually make yeah. a difference. <laughs> yeah. And Melissa. Uh, I seem to sail through with um, sense of humour, connection to mob. Um, yeah, my friends are great. And I don't work too hard. I work in intensive bursts, you know, but it's uh, pre-Cook, you know, the Aboriginal civilizations. We had a long, long, long time to work out how to live, how human beings could live intelligently on the planet. And Professor John Altman's research shows that in the fertile parts of Australia, Aboriginal people generally didn't have to engage in work-like activities for more than three or four hours a day, as in, you know, digging for food, fishing, you know, hunting, harvesting. Uh, and I've always taken that as my benchmark, so it's rare for me to work more than four hours a day. <laughs> I want some of that. Yeah, we all want that. <laughs> And I sleep like a baby. <laughs> well, we can throw open to some questions and we're a bit blinded by the light here. So I think there's a microphone downstairs and upstairs. Is there anyone who's got a question for the panel? Or anyone who can beatbox. <laughs> uh, this subject hasn't come up yet and I would be interested to hear particularly Melissa's point of view and Kimberley's on environmental justice and particularly with regards to um, people, you know, so low socioeconomic circumstances and climate change obviously is the demon that's lingering behind environmental justice issues and mm -hmm. it's not really a question, it's just an issue. I'd say it's a good topic. So we'll start with you, Melissa. Yeah, I remember going into Bogo Road Prison in about ooh, 98, something like that. Could have been 94. Anyway, in the 90s. And uh, I was briefly running an art class in the prison uh, or, you know, providing a space for women to do art. And there was this young Aboriginal girl there. She would have been maybe 18. And uh, she wasn't in for very serious crimes. And I said to her, you know, what's... What's the top of your list? What's your what worries you? And this girl said the environment. You know, she's she's locked up. She's young. She's poor. She had, you know not much going for her. I, I know she's she's ended up okay. She's outside and she's working, and obviously much older now. But I, I was always struck by that was her mm. key concern. So you can never actually assume. Uh, where people's concerns lie is the first thing I took away from that. But of course, as Aboriginal people, um, land justice and justice around care of country uh, is one of the major things that's been denied us and one of the major things that we continue to fight for. Um, Uncle Bruce Pascoe is going around the country and talking to a lot of farmers and he said, a lot of the time individual farmers are coming to him and saying, yes, we want to look after the country better. We understand that the way things are done now isn't working, that climate change is real, and we actually want to honour the country. And so I think there's, there is always hope that um, people in, connect, in contact with the natural environment in their everyday life 
understand that we can do better and that we have to do better. Kimberly? Yeah, and just to add to that, um, I think you know that the environmental issues are so vast and if you're in the sort of quote-unquote civilized world, we're all guilty. Like, we're all guilty in some way of negatively impacting the environment in some way, shape, or form. Um, I have seen, you know, a there's a lot of lawyers that are fighting um, what I have seen, a real thankless fight, frankly, of trying to protect people's environmental rights. Uh, there's a lot of people within the indigenous communities that are fighting for environmental issues that a lot of people just aren't aware that they're fighting on behalf of all of us. Mm -hmm. And I think sort of that comes again with us educating ourselves a little bit more about what's going on with that and trying to, again, being better, you know, visitors on this planet to our environment. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, the little decisions. Um, Adrian Berigaba is, is leading the fight against Adani on behalf of all of us and has been bankrupted by this Indian billionaire. Um, and not all of us can give money to Adrian Berigaba, although if we can, we should. But we can make choices about, you know, what kind of vehicle we drive. Um, you know, last year I paid $750. That offset my carbon use for the year. It's not ideal, but it's a hell of a lot better than not spending any money on carbon offsets. Mm. Yeah. Do you want to add anything to that? Mm. Okay, let's go for another. Is there any questions up the top? I can't see anyone there. Yep, well, we'll come back down. Yep. Um, hi, I uh, just wanted to ask in terms of um, doing your bit uh, every day on a day-to-day -day basis, how do you combat, um, like in terms of like educating others and educating yourself, um, how do you combat the kind of, I suppose, oversaturation of issues? Uh, the, the, you like Because I take it personally when there are issues in the world, which there's so many... Um, it's very difficult for um, things to get through to not only myself but other people um, because uh, in this day and age we get quite closed off to issues because where our cups are already too full. Um, do you have any, uh, I suppose, like playlist recommendations on how to, <laughs> uh, I suppose, pose something interesting or different that could engage people when they're already so disengaged with all the problems. Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, one thing that's important is that if you're passionate about an issue, just recognize everyone else is not necessarily passionate about that issue. And so if your goal is to educate, then you need to understand how to adjust to people's sort of personalities in order to educate them in the best way possible to get to receive your message. And I see sort of, especially with, I deal with, I represent a lot of activists, and these are amazing activists like LGBT fighters in Uganda or North Korean defectors that are super, super passionate about their issue, understandably so, but it's hard sometimes for activists to not yell at people <laughs> about what's happening that's, is often of, of dire consequences within their world mm -hmm. because it doesn't help to achieve the end. So what I recommend is just to really find out what, you, what you're passionate about, understand your parameters, understand that, frankly, um, you can't do everything. You know, find out what your strength is and use that to be able to, to share your message 
in the best way possible, but understand what your goal is, if that makes sense. Because your goal often shouldn't be, be this, being the smartest person in the world, mm -hmm. in the room. Your goal should be, I want to achieve this end. Like, I want maybe to them to donate towards this cause. You know, I don't want to bore them to death, and then they feel like, then they walk away, you know. So that's what I find works for me. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. I, and I would also add to that and say there are a lot of good things happening. It's not all doom and gloom. Mm -hmm. So how do we acknowledge what is working? Yeah, and start to have that conversation about what's perhaps not working so well or that we can do differently so we can invite that listening for what we might be about to talk into but it's picked the audience as well really is i think it's about values if you if you're clear about your values life becomes very simple well, that's, that's the case for me. Because I understand Aboriginal law and I understand what justice is in that context, I have a blueprint for how I approach my life, for how I approach parenting, for how I approach everyone who I meet. It means I meet everyone as an equal. And uh, it, life becomes, like I said, very simple, very easy. And when you see people being treated badly or as less than then you know that you have to do something. You can't always do something, but you know what's required. So I would say, what are your values? Become very clear about your values um, and act accordingly. Still don't think we've got a question upstairs. Poor eyesight. But I think we've got time for one more downstairs, at least. Mine's very quick. Um, why is truth seen as a crime these days, in particular in relation to Timor, um, Assange and Snowden. Truth seems to be the evil thing in the room. Mm -hmm. Wow. I don't <laughs> think that's a, a modern thing. I think truth has always been um, contested and uh, attacked. Uh, maybe the fact that it's seen as a, a crime these days is because people have been freer in recent decades than in previous centuries, if we're talking globally, to actually have a voice. I don't know. What do you think, Kimberly? That's a deep question. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question, but it's a deep question. Should we be having a cocktail drink? But um, <sighs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, I do think it's that's depressing to me. I, I have to admit how there's you know, whole generations of kids that are learning that it's okay to lie, you know, and I think that's sick that that's happening around the world. But again, it goes to what you're saying about our values and about what we have a responsibility ourselves to do as individuals to make, sh to like honor truth and to try to, you know, uh, perpetuate the truth. Um, but it's it's hard. I don't I don't know why truth has become a weapon, but unfortunately it has. And I'm hoping that the tables turn. But like I said, it's our responsibility to stand up for it in in any way that we can. I mean, as an Aboriginal person, um, the, the Australian history has been a, a giant fabrication for 200 years, you know. And now some of the truth is being more widely shared more widely known and more widely acknowledged. So um, to me, it's not a new phenomenon that um, 
uh, lies have been weaponised against people. Uh, I think it, it depends what you've got to lose. You know, one of the things... My book's sold out, unfortunately, so none of you can race out and buy it from the shop here, <laughs> sadly, for you and for me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one of the inspirations for Too Much Lip was this spirit of defiance in the women coming out of prison and going back into prison and, and those working with them, some of whom are ex-prisoners themselves. And it's like, we don't care what you think or what you say because we have nothing to lose, so we're going to tell the truth. And, you know, there's, there's a famous story from Moree when the Freedom Rides were happening back in the 60s. And the, the Freedom Riders rocked up to Moree, a very racist outback, um, Australian town, and uh, the people were denied access to the swimming pool, the local swimming pool. Blackfellas weren't allowed in, and so the white and black protesters got to the gates and um, weren't allowed in, and there was all hubbub, and the mayor and the, you know, the dignitaries of the town came down to sort it out. And some of the Aboriginal women that were there stood up and said, you, such and such, you're standing there telling us our kids can't go into this pool. But some of them are your kids, aren't they, mate? <laughs> you know, those kids got into that swimming pool so fast and make your head spin. <laughs> so the, you know, the, the truth is, uh, is a great weapon in the hands of those who haven't, either haven't got anything to lose or don't care you know, what they have to lose. Did you have anything to add to that? I, I think the truth is confronting and it challenges the dominant discourse and uh, that's always going to be a challenge. It doesn't mean we don't put it out there and, and we need to keep speaking mm -hmm. the truth, but it's not easy. I'm mindful of the time and I just would like to give an Australian audience, and we have Melissa Lukashenko here, just following up on this notion of truth, mm. obviously one of the things coming out of the Uluru Statement, the idea of truth commission and telling the truth, mm. is that something that could lead to justice? I think it's a part of justice, yeah. Yeah, um, as in South Africa. Um, not everyone will listen, but uh, it's certainly a lot better than a school curriculum and a national conversation that pretends that there was no war and there were no victims and let's all hold hands and be happy little Vegemites. Uh, <laughs> because we're not all happy little Vegemites. We can be, but it's going to take a treaty and it's going to take a process of um, coming together as a nation to, to achieve that. And that uh, it won't be easy, but it will happen because we're a patient people and we're not going anywhere. So let's all look forward to a post-treaty Australia mm. where we treat each other decent. Thank you. What a good note to end on. Please, let's have one big thank you for Kimberly Motley, Melissa Lukashenko and good Peter Blood. And unfortunately, it's one of the few times we'll ever be able to say that Melissa Lukashenko is a sellout, but she <laughs> is in the best possible way. However, Kimberly's book is available. Are you selling books too? Yes, you can go and get some books signed if you like. And I'm sure Melissa will be out there if you've already bought one and need one signed. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.